Hi. I'm Rochelle, and I'm doing the Bible reading tonight. It comes from James, because we're doing a series in James. Um, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the law, the whole law, and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Rochelle. We well, welcome one and all. It's good to be here. And as was said earlier by Liam, it is so good to see so many people um, sitting here now because I think there was about 10 when we started. So um, maybe word got out that I was actually up here again tonight. Well, we're going to be looking at this uh, passage of Scripture, James 2, 1 to 13. And contained within these verses is a sin which I, I personally believe that God hates. And I think... When it all boils down to it, a lot of us really dislike this sin. And particularly if we're one of those people who have been on the receiving end of people being um, or showing partiality or showing favoritism and we're the one that has been rejected. And there just seems to be something about it which is very, very difficult for us to take. So when we talk about favouritism, it's one of those things which most of us would prefer not to have to admit that it has actually happened. If someone fronts you and speaks to you about how you favoured someone or how you've shown partiality, we seem to want to shrink away from that. It seems to be a particularly bad thing to do. It's got this awful connotation to it. It's about rejecting people for, in the big scheme of things, very superficial or shallow reasons. And at the heart of partiality is the act of receiving, accepting, and consequently rejecting people on face value only. It's about judging a book by its cover. It's about favouring someone based on their appearance, their race, their apparent economic status, their apparent value to me or the organisation that I'm a part of. And it's superficial. And as such, by God's word, it's evil. It's against God, 
It's against his commands. And I hope that as we move this through, as we move through this tonight, you'll see that that is revealed. Let's just pray. Father God, again, we need your help. We need you to open our hearts and minds to what you're saying to us this evening. Lord, if this message comes just from me, it's useless. So Lord, we pray for the truth of your word to come through. We pray that people will receive that word, that Lord, it'll be a word that changes their hearts, their minds, and that Lord, they'll realise that there's times we've all done this, but that's not the way you would have us to be. So Lord, draw us closer to you. Humble us before you. Help us to be your people, your representatives, your ambassadors on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're called not to show partiality. And the reason why we're called not to show partiality is because it's about comparing ourselves to others. And so there's two points tonight, praise God. Yeah, they're long points though. The first one's not so bad, the second one's really long. And the first point is our faith must centre on Christ. If we don't want to show partiality, if we don't want to show favouritism, then our faith needs to centre on Christ and who he is and what he's called us to be. And obviously when I say this in our church context, people will go, well, that's a no-brainer, Charlie. Of course, that's what has to happen. But if we face reality, do we think through what this means for us each and every day? Is this how we live moment by moment? Do we really place all our thoughts and everything upon our faith and what Christ would do in each and every individual situation? And I've got to tell you, I don't. I wish I did. I'd stop making so many stupid mistakes if I did. But I'm not like that. And so James says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And James starts this chapter in a very, very interesting way, I think. He, sh he says, show no partiality as we hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Why does he say it like that? Why is it this Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? And I believe he wants us to really think about who Jesus is. The Lord of glory is this name that was given to God. And in Psalm 24, 7, 8, God is described as the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And I really believe that it's one of those occasions where the person who's trying to describe God's might, God's power, God's ability to overcome all powers on this earth, and they're just lost for words. They don't know how to express it. And we see that again and again in Scripture, where so many writers try to describe the things they're seeing. Think of John on the Isle of Patmos, when he sees God glorified. He hasn't got the words. He doesn't know how to describe it. And I think that's the case here in Psalm 24. It is their best description of our glorious, wonderful, all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, omnipresent God. That's who they're describing. And it's an attempt to describe God in the most powerful and profound way. It's an attempt to show the God that we worship is this God who is above all gods. There's nothing to compare to him. And we're told that God dwells in, in unapproachable light. And the bit that really blows my mind about God, the unapproachable light thing's pretty cool. But the thing that really blows my mind is the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I don't understand how that works, but it really does blow me away. And we won't go into that tonight. There's this whole thing that we could talk about when it comes to the Trinity. Actually, we could talk about it for years. But uh, the thing is, we have this Trinity. 
And Matthew 1.23 tells us that the virgin will conceive and have a son. And his name will be Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. So when Jesus came upon this earth, this was God. God came to earth. It was God with us. And that emphasizes the Trinity as well. That's two parts of the Trinity. So the Jesus that's mentioned here in James is the Jesus that we worship as our Lord and Saviour. And he is the perfect image of God. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. John 1.1 tells us that Jesus is the creator. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. And that's emphasised in John 8.19 and John 14.7. So back to James. Because of who God is, because of who Jesus is, if you understand, if you've caught even the slightest glimpse of God, the Father, God, the Son, then you know, you know how incredible he is. They dwell in unapproachable light. No one can see them and live. None of us can approach them. All of us, all of us fall way short of where we need to be. I was so very ugly because of my sin before God. But he didn't say, whoa, Charlie's just so bad, I don't want to go anywhere near him. I don't want to be a part of that. Charlie isn't the type of guy I want to be associated with. Charlie isn't the guy I want to be seen with. And God never required me to reach a certain standard or level or anything before he actually accepted me. He doesn't require that for any of us. God doesn't call us to have a certain stature, spirituality or ethnic identity before he actually accepts me, before he accepts each one of us. He pours his grace, his love, his mercy equally upon all men, women and children. And he says... Because I have poured my grace, my love, my mercy out upon you so lavishly, you need to do the same. You are my ambassadors. You are my representatives. That's what you're called to do. And this passage says, if you are truly holding to your faith in Jesus, you should not show partiality. Jesus didn't when he accepted us. We're not supposed to either. We should not be comparing ourselves to those around us, but each of us should consider who we are before God. That's the only comparison to be made. God in all his glory, all his might, all his power, and me. It's a level playing field here on earth. Jesus is telling us through James to let his love, his forgiveness, his inclusiveness flow through us to all men. You can't show partiality because it doesn't represent Jesus the way that he intended to be represented. We are his ambassadors. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are to represent him as he's called us to. We are commissioned to bear his name. And the call is to not bring shame upon his name. And showing partiality does. So when we live for Christ, the way we live, the very nature of our life should actually refute social distinctions. 
James knows that there's people that are showing favoritism to those who are rich in the church. They're continuing with the habits and traditions that the Jews were performing. The rich received positions of honor. They were mentioned often from the front, you know, like I'd be standing up here, oh, hello, Mr. Smith. Oh, Mrs. Smith's here. Hello, Mr. Smith, thank you for coming. Mr. Jones, thank you for your donation last week. These people would be acknowledged for what they did. And James is saying that's not the way it's supposed to be. And, you know, in the time that James wrote this, if there was not enough seating and things like that, we'll be like, hey, Thurindu, can you just get up and go down the back? I really want Mr. Jones to sit there tonight. Thanks, mate. No worries. And, in fact, you know, if it was a little bit too busy, it's like, Thurindu, guess what? Can you just go out to the car park, please, mate? We, we just got a few people here that we need to have in place. So, car park. Thanks, mate. Nice, hey? Nice. So James says, you've got to stop doing it. He calls the church out on it. He calls them judges with evil thoughts and evil intentions. He declare, he's saying that they declare that one person is more important than another. Their acceptance and recognition of these people is as a result of what they have, how they dress, how good their education is or whatever. It's, it's no different today, is it? Uh, it's interesting, you know, um, if I introduce Elena to anyone, and this only ever happens in context, but if I introduce her as my wife, Elena Harrison, everyone's like, oh, hello, how are you? Very nice. But if I go, this is my wife, Dr. Elena Ingchi, the attitude changes. Oh, you're a doctor. Oh, actually, I'm a dentist. Oh, a dentist. Gee, that's exciting, isn't it? You know? And, and, and the, just, just that title changes the whole way people treat them. Have you experienced that yourself? You know, and, and you've got these people with their false airs and graces where, you know, I introduce Elena. She, did, she never does this. Please don't hear me say that. But, you know, I introduce Elena. I go, this is my wife, Elena. She goes, oh, excuse me, Charlie, honey. It's Dr. Elena. <laughs> Have you experienced that? Yeah, I'm a doctor. You need to pay attention. You need to look at me. I'm an important person. I didn't do that six years for nothing. Think about our movies stars, our TV celebrities, they get all this recognition and all these accolades. You know, they throw $100,000 out to a charity and everyone goes, oh, wow, they gave $100,000. It's possibly not even 1% of their income. Truth be known. And yet we go, wow, how cool is that? Isn't that incredible? Sports stars, there's been a bit of a fundamental shift. You know, people who are older than me, so that's anyone that's 30 plus, um, you know, okay, it's a bit older than that. But, you know, back in our age, in our generation, you know, I'm, I'm in my 50s now. But, uh, you know, that generation, our sports stars were squeaky clean people. And they were held up in high regard. They were considered to be people that we would look up to. Now, it's not quite like that. But still, we, we hold our sports stars up in this, this, this field where they're something special. And think, forget about those. Think about the people who are genuinely beautiful people. Haven't we got a tendency to warm to them more than others? What about those who do have an incredible education? They've got incredible gifts, talents and abilities. We've got a tendency to just give them everything, give them free scope on what they want to do, give them the best of what's available. I'm not just talking church, this is what happens. But I've actually been in church situations too. And at one church in particular, it was a terrible, terrible situation. There was a very financial family there. And um, 
the church actually started suffering financially, so this family decided to buy the manse because the church could no longer maintain it. So this family bought the manse. The pastor still stayed in the manse. And, and this family had a bit of a stranglehold on the church then, and they used it to their advantage. And the pastor, the pastor used to preach the gospel message, and this family came to him and said, we want you to stop that. And he's like, well, I have to be true to the word and everything like that. And he said, if you don't stop it, we're going to kick you out of the house using their financial influence for their benefits, for their gain. And uh, praise God, he got kicked out of the house because he didn't compromise his preaching. What a man. What a man. That's cool. But we've got these people who have this financial influence. And, you know, they say things like, well, if you don't do this, then I'm going to take my money elsewhere. If you don't do this, I'm going to do this with my money. It's like, let me write the check for you. Goodbye. And then when we think of our worship teams, I've been in churches too where... The person who gets the lead singing is incredible, so massively talented, not a Christian. How can they lead worship? But because they have this incredible gift, this incredible talent, we go, we've got to use that. We'll put ourselves, she'll come to faith one day. It's like, no. And you know what? She never did. Not in the four years I was there. Terrible situations. And so we give these people positions of responsibility, positions of trust because of a skill set they have or because of how good-looking they are. And that's counter to what Scripture says. And you know what? It's really damaging to the church. When we put people on this stage... It should be about a heart attitude. It should be about their relationship with God. When we put people into any ministry, it should be because they're reflecting their relationship with God. When we praise and honour people, it should be because they're persistent in their walk and faith with Christ. And when we elevate others who are pursuing Christ, we're suppressing those who are. And we're saying, you know what? What you're doing is not good enough. We're showing partiality and favouritism. Because we're putting them down. And again, I'm not speaking about SDBC. Praise God, I haven't seen uh, that here. I hope it's not happening. But it happens in churches. And we need to be aware. It's evil and it's against God. James 4, uh, sorry, Luke 4, 18 and 9 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And Jesus himself is sitting in a synagogue and he has been given the scroll and he reads this. He reads this from Isaiah and this is a record of Jesus actually reading that out in the synagogue. And then as he rolls the scroll up and he hands it back to the attendant, he says, this word has been fulfilled in your presence today. This is happening here and now. And Jesus came to preach the good news to the poor, to the oppressed, to the captives. And if the faith we speak about having is the same faith that Christ had, if we are wanting to follow him as he leads us, then who should we be seeking to speak the gospel to? Shouldn't we be wanting to follow his lead? Shouldn't we be wanting to follow his guidance and his example? James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? 
James is speaking to this problem in the church that they've begun to wrongfully honour the rich, the same people who've caused the church the most harm. And James is saying those people may seem like they have wealth, those people may seem like they've got it all together, but true wealth is not found in material possessions. True wealth is found in the strength of our faith. The rich are only rich temporarily, while the poor will inherit the kingdom of heaven. They won't inherit that because they're poor. They inherit that because the poor people who give their faith to Christ are people who know how valuable that faith is. They don't have anything else. They have nothing else to depend on. They have nothing else to trust. So their trust is 100% in God and in God alone. Think about the story of the widow's offering in Mark 12. One, oh, actually, it's quite an extension, 41 to 44. Mark 12, 41 to 44. And we've got these rich people who come in, and, and in Mark it actually says they throw their offering uh, in, in and I, I can imagine these people with all the pomp and ceremony they can muster and then they're throwing their gold coins so that people will pay attention because they can hear them rattling and, and so they get their reward in full but again this is only part of what they give and they give to be noticed by others and then this widow comes in this widow comes in with two copper coins the smallest of the currency that is presently being used in that day and age and she comes in I imagine she sneaks in she doesn't want anyone to see her and she comes forward and she offers those two coins and Jesus is watching Jesus is looking at those coming into the treasury and he says to his disciples this lady she has given more than anyone else and the disciples are wondering how could this possibly be we've seen what the other guys have given and Jesus says they gave out of their wealth it didn't really cost them too much but this lady this widow she gave everything and because she gave everything she got it she understood what it meant Jesus said she gave more because she understood the incredible gift of God she got it she realized there was nothing she could do ever nothing that she could give that would change her status before God but she realized God himself wanted a relationship with her and so her salvation comes not because of who she is but because of who God is his undeserved favor was poured out upon her and she knew it and she appreciated it and because she understood that because she understood God's grace love and favor she gave everything she had she couldn't think of anything more to give so she gave it all and our salvation is a work of God too there's nothing in me that would cause God to say I need that I want Charlie doesn't matter what we do for a living how popular we are how much of the Bible we can quote because there is nothing I can gain for my salvation we need to stop favoring others as if what they have what they can do for us or who they are in the world will make one skerrick of difference compared to God and his grace if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture you shall love your neighbor as yourself you're doing well but if you show partiality you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it the tone of James writing changes here he now tries to emphasize that the sin of partiality or favoritism is not something trivial it's not a small sin it's actually a pretty big one think of the things that he mentioned prior to this about adultery and murder and everything like that he's wrapping this sin in with those his emphasis here 
is that you will be convicted. You will be judged if you show partiality. And in contrast to showing partiality, James now holds up the royal law, the command to love your neighbour as yourself, which comes from Leviticus 19.18. and is emphasised by, emphasized, sorry, by Jesus in uh, Matthew 22, uh, 37 to 40. And James is saying, if you follow this command to love your neighbour, you are doing what is right. And James emphasises, emphasis on the love command is much like what Christ said. And realistically, if we were to fulfil the command by loving everyone equally then we've met the spirit of the entire Old Testament law. Of course, we can't do it. It'd be awesome if we could, but that's basically what they say. If we meet that command, we will fulfil the spirit of the entire Old Testament law. And what is hitting in our translation here tonight is that this recalling of the command to love our neighbour is written in the future sense. It's actually a hope that James writes. I know where you are right now and I'm telling you that where you are is not the place you need to be. And my hope is that you will go out and you'll love your neighbour as yourself. It's a future tense that is actually used in this case in the Greek. And so he wants the people to move from where they are to where they need to be. It's about calling them to action, saying this is what you need to do. that they'll change what they're presently doing and stop showing favouritism. And there can be no misunderstanding here. Those who show favouritism that discriminate against the poor places that person alongside those who slander the name of God. We need to understand that. It's a harsh teaching, but it's a prophetic teaching which comes from Isaiah. Isaiah 3, 14 and 15 says, The Lord will enter into judgment. With the elders and princes of his people, it is you who've devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. And this passage of, from Isaiah is against Israel, but specifically this section is about Jerusalem in chapter 3. They will be judged because of their attitude. And James says the same will happen to the church. Showing favoritism is a serious sin. It breaks God's command to love your neighbour. So what should we do? James tells us to speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And I love the way James writes this. Speak and act. He's talking about our declaration of faith. If we say we follow Jesus, then that has to be followed by action. It can't be empty, hollow words. We have to live out what we say we believe. And our actions should reflect what we say. And in context, it's likely that church prided itself on being faithful to God's royal law. The royal law is that law to love your neighbour as yourself. But James says showing partiality is breaking that law and being unfaithful to God. And come the day of judgment, we are going to be judged according to our conformity to the law. There's no escaping that unless we call Jesus Christ our Lord and Saviour. Jesus kept the law perfectly. He imparts his righteousness upon us. If we call Jesus Christ our Lord and Saviour, we are not going to be judged like that. But there will be a judgment that is. What is being said here is that our actions need to reflect our declaration of faith and primarily that will be in self-sacrificing love. In Matthew 25, Jesus declares the outworking of true faith is found in acts of mercy, providing for the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, those in need of clothing, the sick, the imprisoned. 
And Jesus and James are saying exactly the same thing. The evidence or major focal point of our faith is on whether we love our neighbour. That's the true metal. Judgment without mercy will be shown to the one who has not shown mercy. If you are willing to show favouritism, you will be judged. That's what this passage tells us. If you're willing to walk past the poor or needy and not give them the same love and grace that God has lavished upon you, you will be judged. That's what this scripture says. And this isn't about a threat. This isn't about beating you over the head and making you think you've got to do this, otherwise you're a goner. This is thinking about what the gospel actually means to you. That's what it's at the base of this. If you don't fully understand what the gospel has done for you, then you won't do this. The gospel message that we heard, that many of us have received, is that God poured his love and mercy out upon us when we didn't deserve it at all. And if we really understand that, we want to pour it out into other people's lives. We want them to understand the incredible grace that God has given us. Let's take some time to think about some things. What were you like when you first came to faith? Just think about that. And I know some of you grew up in the church and you possibly didn't have as many scandalous things in your history as some of us, particularly your pastor. But I'm pretty disgusted with who I was. By people's standards, I was okay. I was that fun guy that everyone wanted to get along with. Wanted to be around. But you know, God knows everything that I've done. The things that no one else knows about. God knows every secret thought that's ever gone through my mind. And here's the thing I really don't get. With all that awful stuff which I'm too ashamed to speak to others about, to put into words... God didn't reject me. He didn't say, I'm not picking him or her because of what he's done or what he's thought. Rather, he goes after us. He pursues us. He wants us. And it's just so, so incredible. He rescued us by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place. And he's adopted us as sons and daughters of the living God. Does that just blow your mind? It does me. And his call for us is to go and show that same mercy, that same love, that same grace to those around us. They are lost. And the last thing, the last thing we should be doing is looking for the people that we really like, the people that we get on with, and showing them favoritism. Our call is a call to a life that reflects the gospel. In simple words, that's to love these people like crazy who are unlovable. It's to love these people like crazy who I would normally not associate with. Those who have nothing to offer me, those that I would not associate with. We should choose to love them, not because of who they are, not because of who I am, but who, because of what the gospel is and what the gospel's done for me. Think about your life. Do you, do you understand, and I'm struggling for words, do you understand how ugly things were in your life before you came to know God? 
Do you appreciate that? And yet he lavished. I'm not sure if you understand that word, but he just pours out so much upon us, an abundance more than we ever need. He just lavished his love upon us. If you understand that, if you do, if you understand it even just a little bit, you should have no problem living a life that is, shows the type of love and mercy to the world and to those the world has rejected. They so desperately need it. We're God's ambassadors. There's no plan B. Okay, enough doom and gloom. This week, have a look at the Beatitudes. Memorise the Beatitudes if you can. This is God's plan for the correct order of the world. Something happened in the Garden of Eden and the whole world was turned on its head. When you read the Beatitudes, that's what God wants for the world. For you personally, can you seek some help this week? If you're having difficulty with sin in your life and you're burdened, can you just find someone to help you? Can you come and speak to one of the pastors, speak to one of the leaders, um, speak to a trusted Christian friend about your struggles? We'd love to help you with that. We'd love to help you understand God's grace and mercy, his acceptance of you. And I want you to think through how you treat new people. When you come into this church, if you see someone new sitting here one evening, do you go across and speak to them? Do you try and make them welcome? You know, it'd be great even amongst your friends if you got to know all their interests and things like that. So when you meet someone and this person says, yeah, I just happen to like jumping out of planes, and you go, oh, wow, I know someone else who likes that. And you can make that connection and make this person feel welcome because they've got common ground. Can you think about how we do that? Because we're told we're not supposed to show partiality and we, we do it unknowingly, hey. Why are you guys all sitting together there? They're all your mates, eh? There's nothing wrong with that. I do exactly the same thing. A couple of people come and sat with me tonight. That's an anomaly, but it's good. But, you know, like, we, we just do that. We gravitate to those that we know. What about actually taking, making an effort and saying, you know what, I'm going to sit with that stranger who's on their own. I'm going to sit with that person who's always sitting on their own. You may not necessarily get on with them, but that may be something that really, really speaks to them. Think about your giving. I think in this day and age, you know, we, we've got this incredible ability just to set our giving up electronically. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but, but do you think about actually what you're giving to God and how that works? And, and have you prayed and said, well, God, what are you calling me to give? What are you asking me to give? Is this what I should be doing or should I be doing something more, something less? Should I be looking at uh, giving over and above what I'm doing in offerings to other people? Is there organisations I can be giving to, Lord, that you're calling me to? How much are we putting aside and storing up? And I'm not saying you can't have something stored up. I think, you know, my generation that's coming through, we're supposed to survive off our super. I've got $30,000 because I was that generation where, you know, there's lots of people that didn't actually pay my super. 30,000 is not going to last long. So I had to do something about that. But, you know, we've got to be careful that we're not storing up a heap so we have this lavish lifestyle when we retire. I don't think there's such a thing as retirement. For Christians, you just change jobs. But, you know, we've got to think about that. Is God calling you to store that up? Or is he saying, you know what, just, just keep giving it out. Keep a bit for yourself, but keep giving it out. Is that what God's calling you to do?
I, I can't say it is, but you, you need to work that out with him. And I want you to pray. If you're guilty of showing favoritism, and I'll put my hand up here because I've done it. It's not just about people and relationships and things like that. Sometimes we worship money. Sometimes we worship things that we own. I had this car I dearly loved. Whew. Man, that thing was a money pit. Not good. We think about gaining wealth. We think about the positions that we have and there's such pressure on young people to have jobs that it's going to pay them X amount of dollars so that they will survive in this world. That should not be the focus of our children. They should be focusing on a relationship with God. So tonight, if any of that rings true, I'd like you to pray this week, but I'd like you to come and pray with myself, with a trusted Christian friend, with one of the Christian leaders around you. Again, no judgment, no persecution from me. Just celebration that God has spoken to you and called you to change. That's what we preach for. Not recognition from me. I, I, I don't want to be recognised for giving a word. I want you to change so that you draw closer to God. Let's just pray and I'll hand back to the worship team. Father God, thank you so much for this word. Again, Lord, it's a difficult word and James just seems to be about all these challenges, Lord. But it's good because it draws us closer to you. So Father, tonight, I know again you've spoken to people and I just ask, Lord, that you'll put that word deep in our hearts and our minds. It'll be something that draws us closer to you, something that calls us to change stuff in our life so we can be your ambassadors, we can be your trusted representatives on this earth, Lord, because we want to live more for you than anything else. Father, for those things that we've made idols... Those things that we've trusted more than you. Let, let's just put those things aside, Lord. And Father, for when we've showed favoritism, and again, I'll put my hand up here, Lord, please forgive me. Help us to treat everyone equally, Lord. We're not going to get on with everyone. That's not what you're asking us to do. But Lord, help us to treat people equally. Help us to make everyone feel welcome, regardless of what they're wearing, regardless of how much money they appear to have, regardless of what they're driving. Lord, let us be your people people who are so totally sold out for you we're oblivious to the values that the world actually praises we want to value what you value lord and in your presence before your throne none of us measure up forgive us for thinking otherwise in jesus name amen